God is good. All the time. A huge part of an invitation to attend Christ's church isn't just an invitation to sit through a worship service. It's an invitation to become part of a Christian community. I like the word community a whole lot better than congregation because I, I feel like we should do more than just congregate. We should be in community. We should do life together here. It's my prayer that not only will you be touched by the worship service today, but you will find a spiritual family here and a spiritual home. When I first entered seminary, they were in the late stages of updating the old United Methodist hymnal, and it was a big deal. Back then, if you were going to call yourself a church, you were going to have a steeple, a bulletin, a piano, an organ. The pastor was going to wear a robe with the right paramount to reflect each liturgical season. And you're going to have a whole lot of hymnals. The bigger the church, the more hymnals you had. You didn't have to report your attendance. You could just say, we're a thousand hymnal church. There's a lot of buzz in the Emory University campus about the new hymnal because one of our professors was an editor. And a lot of class time was actually spent on the topic. It was 1990. Anybody remember 1990? The winds of political correctness, liberation theology, inclusive language, radical feminism filled the air. Were I to sum up the least popular demographic on the Emory campus, it would be Midwestern bootstrapping male evangelicals who were serving a church. Guess what I was? A Midwestern bootstrapping male evangelical who was serving a church. Seminary was great. I recall there was a major move at the time to revise the lyrics of the classic hymns to make them more gender inclusive, to take out patriotic and warmongering tunes like the Battle Hymn of the Republic, delete most of the old gospel songs, but most of all, they wanted to make the hymnal less bloody. It seemed that any hymn mentioning blood of any kind had a tough time making it through the censors and a lot of the great songs of our faith were left fluttering on the cutting room floor. In all fairness, a few bloody songs made it into the hymnal, but not very many. The people who edited that hymnal truly thought that taking out the songs and changing the lyrics that were offensive to them would foster a more loving community. I don't doubt their motives. But what we ended up getting was a weak sauce hymnal, an anemic collection of largely unfamiliar songs, many of which lacked the power of the gospel. You see, the church of Jesus Christ needs the blood of Jesus at full strength. Robert Lowry wrote, who can wash away my sin? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus what can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not even the hymn censors were able to keep that one out. Some might say that technical advances, big screens, an entertainment culture, a lack of people who read music and sing parts killed the hymnal, and, and they may be right. But some of its demise was self-inflicted by the very people trying to save it. 
You see, in Christianity, the power is not found in being culturally relevant. The power is in the blood of Jesus Christ. Lewis E. Jones penned, there is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. That one didn't make the hymnal. After the triumphant entry into Jerusalem that we call Palm Sunday, Mark's gospel cuts away from his storyline to recount previous details of Jesus' teaching and ministry. In the next three chapters, Jesus clears the temple. He instructs Jewish zealots to pay taxes to Caesar. He declares loving God and loving neighbor is the most important of the commandments. And not in, it's not until Mark chapter 14 that he returns to the Holy Week narrative. And this story takes us back to the Jerusalem suburb of Bethany, hometown of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, where Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. There's a dinner party at the home of Simon the leper. Wouldn't you hate to have that nickname? Be, be kind of like a kid in the 50s who grew up in a neighborhood and somehow when he was 10, people started calling him stinky and he could never quite shake it. Simon the leper had a dinner party at his home and a woman broke open a jar filled with expensive perfume and she poured it on Jesus's head. The religious folks sharply criticized her for her wastefulness. You see, even back then, people apparently had strong ideas about what other people should do with their own money. Much to everyone's surprise, Jesus defended the woman, and he actually turned on her critics. He declared that they could help the poor any day, but today, she had anointed his body for burial, and her deed would never be forgotten. That prophecy's come true. It's 2,000 years later and we're talking about it today. Judas, one of the 12, Jesus' inner circle, became outraged. This should be the easiest thing in the world for us to get our heads around today because we live in a culture that says, I am outraged, therefore I am. Jesus just wasn't turning out to be the kind of Messiah that Judas wanted him to be on one hand. And he wasn't turning out to be the kind of leader the religious establishment could tolerate on the other. It landed Jesus between a rock and a hard place. Judas went to the leading priests and arranged to have Jesus handed over to them. At a time that would not cause a riot. 30 pieces of silver wasn't all that much money back then. Maybe we would think of it as a weekend trip somewhere. It was a deal made with the devil. Verse 12. On the, day of Pas on the day the Passover lambs were sacrificed. As a part of the Passover where the Jews recounted Moses leading God's people from slavery in Egypt to the promised land. Everyone was required to bring a perfect lamb to the temple to sacrifice. I want to be very clear. Very few modern people could have gotten through a worship service back then. Tens of thousands of lambs were sacrificed at Passover. The temple was not a nice, clean church. It was a slaughterhouse. If you've ever taken a deer into a busy processor during shotgun season, you have an idea 
of what the carnage looked like. If you've ever lived next to a packing house, you have an idea of what the odor smelled like. And if you've ever killed and cleaned an animal, you have some idea of the process. Each worshiper held a lamb and they slit the throat of the lamb. They drained the blood in a gold or a silver bowl. The priests would take the bowls full of blood and hand them down an assembly line. And then at the end, they would throw the blood against the altar. The carcass was filleted. The entrails and fat were burned in sacrifice. The worship was then given the meat minus the priest's share. And it had to be immediately roasted on a spit with pomegranate wood fueling the open fire. Meat in hand, it was time to celebrate the highly scripted Passover meal that recounted Moses leading the Hebrews toward the promised land. You got to understand, the Passover was the kind of thing that made Jews Jews. In the same sense, Christmas and Easter are the kind of things that make Christians Christian. This was the kind of thing that made Jews Jews. Never forget, Jesus of Nazareth was born a Jew and he died a Jew. He is steeped in that tradition. The disciples asked Jesus, where do you want us to go to prepare the Passover supper? With the temple duties fulfilled, a rabbi and his disciples would celebrate the elaborate ritual of the Passover meal every year. It connected them to the larger story of deliverance past and present and future. Passover was more than remembering God's glorious miracles of yesterday. It was participation in God's miracles of today and a celebration of miracles that may yet come. It was the affirmation and the perpetuation of the faith community. We are the people that God set free through Moses. God set us free once and God can do it again. And they anticipated the arrival of a Messiah, a new Moses, to set them free from Roman occupation. Verse 13 through 15, Jesus sent two of them into Jerusalem, two miles away. A man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him and he will take you to a room already set up. Prepare the supper there. One of the things you have to do in the Gospels is decide, is this a miracle story or is this something that was prearranged? There's plenty of miracle stories in the Gospels. I just don't think this is one of them. Now, the room would have been one of many such rooms in Jerusalem that were rented out for the celebration of Passover in Airbnb style. If you know the culture back then, and if you're interested in the larger culture, I would recommend in the bookstore, Trail Guide to the Gospel of John. In it, I've set Holy Week in a political context so that you really get a great idea of what was happening. We're just dealing with one little snapshot today. But if you know the culture, the tip-off that this was prearranged is in the text. A Jewish man would never carry a pitcher of water. A man carrying a pitcher of water or a jar of water would really be like a person standing in an airport at arrivals with a sign held up. They would truly stand out. The disciples couldn't miss him, and he took them to the upper room. Why? Because it was dangerous, and Jesus knew he was in danger. It had to be in a secret place. This final meal was pre-planned. 
It was also unbelievably important to Jesus. But in this meal, Jesus would break every rule of Judaism. Every single rule he would break. He would reinterpret everything that they knew. Verse 16, the disciples went ahead and found everything just as Jesus said and prepared the Passover meal. Here's a great spiritual principle. When we are acting in obedience to God, we often find that Christ has gone before us. I just call it the ping life. It's living life sensitive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. We are in our 500 initiative where we are inviting one person to church, one new person to church every week for 60 weeks. Last week was our first week, only 59 more to go. But we are in this and in inviting people to church, I'm not asking people to shove square pegs into round holes. I'm asking people to learn to recognize a square hole where the peg goes right in. I'm asking people to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Let the Spirit guide them and illuminate them. Heard a great story before early church. Uh, We had a person in our church who had already invited someone that day, so they'd already used up their cart. And they ran into another person that they wanted to invite, and they didn't have a card to give them. And they were thinking, Lord, what am I going to do? They looked up, they saw another person from Christ Church. And they said, do you have an extra card? They did. They gave them a card and they made the invitation. It's one of those stories where God is going before us. When we walk in obedience to God, we see God's miracles and we see that Christ is going before us. I can't tell you how many folks have told me that they invited someone to church and that person responded, you know what? I've been looking for a church. And I don't want you to feel bad if that didn't happen to you. Because I made my invitation this week and it didn't happen to me. Didn't happen to me. But the win is in making the invitation. What happens after that is all up to God. But I wanna learn to flow in the Holy Spirit. You never have to force things when you're in the will of God. You just look for open doors and you walk through them. Verse 17 and 18, Jesus arrived with the 12 disciples and said, one of you will betray me. Let me tell you something. Jesus knew how to ruin a party. (laughs) Now, we've all heard people say, I don't attend church because churches are filled with hypocrites. I can't tell you how many times I have heard that over the past 35 years in ministry. I don't attend church because church and churches are filled with hypocrites. And do you want to know what I always respond then you should fit right in. (laughs) There's no such thing as a perfect Christian community in a fallen world. Can I just hear an amen from somebody? People criticize churches because we are less than perfect. And I'd be the first person to agree with them. There are no perfect churches and there are no perfect pastors and if you ever found one the second you or me arrived we'd ruin the whole thing if Jesus himself had a congregation of only 12 and one of them turns out to be a rat what makes you think we're going to go 2,000 for 2,000 every single Sunday not only that somebody said something really interesting to me after early church this morning they said church is a hospital for sinners doesn't make any sense to criticize a hospital that there's a few sick people in there. 
Verses 19 through 21. And the disciples he asked, is it I? There's this electric sense of self-awareness and honesty in this collective response. I love honest people. I just do. I love honest people. Jesus said, one of you will betray me. And every one of the disciples said, is it I? The disciples all considered themselves capable of betraying Christ. This would have resonated with Mark's audience as well when he wrote this gospel. When he wrote, Romans were literally hunting down Christians. And betrayal from those closest to you, literally to save their own skin, was way too common. Every Christian in the empire during the time of Mark prayed every night that God would give them the strength not to be a Judas to their Christian community. Still a good prayer. And then Jesus took a loaf of bread, blessed it, and broke it. He gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body. This part is in the script. This is in the bulletin. Any of you raised in liturgical traditions where every Sunday you came to church and there was a bulletin about this thick and you kind of just had to work through it? This is that. Jesus is doing exactly what every other person does at Passover. This is in the bulletin. The final part had to be utterly staggering. Uh, my body? My body? Who gets to change this stuff? The disciples had to be thinking, what? And then he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks for it and they all drank from it. This is my blood poured out from many sealing the covenant. Again, in the Passover meal, did you know you drank several cups of wine in a Passover meal? I can only imagine me doing that. I, I don't drink. I'd probably get three cups in and start singing. <laughs> Taking of the wine was a part of the ritual. But what Jesus said next had to stagger everybody. The wine is your blood? What is up with that? Whatever Passover is becoming, Jesus is staking a claim in it. Everything is changing with this meal. Verse 26, and then they sang a hymn and went to the Mount of Olives. From where the upper room is, you would have just gone over the Temple Mount, and then you would have gone down through the Kidron Valley up into the Mount of Olives. And as they went, they sang. Isaiah 61.3 says to put on a garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness. You know, one of the things we're doing on Wednesday night, we're in Philippians. And Paul and Silas are incarcerated in Philippi. They, they've been beaten illegally. They're chained to a wall in a prison. And guess what they're doing at midnight? Singing. They're singing at midnight. And guess what Jesus is doing? He knows he's on the way to a cross. He knows that one of his disciples is going to betray him. And guess what he does? He leads them in song. I don't know about you, but sometimes in the most difficult times in life, I don't know what to do other than sing. There were a few really rough nights when Melissa was in chemo. 
and we would be up in our loft and it would be the middle of the night and I could tell she was in too much pain and discomfort to sleep. And I didn't really know what to do. And on those three or four nights during that journey, we just sang. I sang a song I learned when I was a boy. And it it just said, peace give I to thee. Peace give I to thee. Not as the world gives, give I to thee. Peace give I to thee. I didn't know what to do. Just sang. Certainly, the disciples had just eaten a heavy meal. Jesus is walking toward the cross, singing. The church of Jesus Christ is a community conceived in faith, birthed in blood, reared in hope, and immersed in love. Such communities are not antiseptic, and they can get a bit messy, but life is in them. Life is in community. No one knows better than I, that the church isn't perfect. I've been doing this a long time, despite my youthful appearance. (laughs) But I love the church, and I believe in the church. I have dedicated my life to the service of Jesus Christ through the church. The church is God's chosen instrument to bring salvation to the world. The church is the crucible where disciples are formed and forged. I have no intention of defending the bloody history of organized religion, and I'm not even going to say we always get it right here, but I am saying that if anything good is going to happen in this world, it's going to be because the church of Jesus Christ finally decides we are going to unapologetically be the church. And I'm not talking about the institutional and not anachronistic, inwardly focused, corporate and bureaucratic church. I have no confidence in that whatsoever. I'm talking about the organic, relational, messy, world-changing community of Jesus Christ. That's where I put my hope. You know, the Greek word for community and communion actually has the same base. It's koinonia. And it literally means having in common. You mind this morning if I tell you what we all have in common? We're all sin sick. And we all live in a fallen world. Where hearts get broken. And people get cancer. And our dreams get shattered. It's tough down here sometimes. We are all... Sin is sick. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What we have in common is that we're all straight up sinners. And since we're infected by a common disease, it should not surprise you that there is a common cure. 
the blood of Jesus Christ. Served at full strength is the antidote to sin. And without that blood, there is no cure. That's what Jesus told us through the Passover meal that he shared with his disciples. On a cross, Jesus became the once and for all sacrificial lamb. And his blood washes away our sin. I need you to hear something this morning. You are loved by God. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how many times you've stumbled and fallen. How many people you've hurt. How many times you've let yourself down. You're just loved by God. He loves you. Not because you're so lovable, but because that's who God is. It's what God does. He loves. So I need to tell you that you're unconditionally loved by God. And for some of you, that's going to be very difficult to receive because you haven't been loved very well in your life. When you performed up to someone's standards, they showed love for you. And when they didn't, they threw you right out the door. But God isn't like that. He just loves and loves and loves and loves. It's who he is, not just what he does. On a cross, Jesus became the very image of that love. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave. Love always does something. Love isn't what love says. Love is what love does. What did God ever do for you? He gave his son to die for your sin and mine. So that we may be right, made right with him for eternity. And that's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that you're welcome to this faith community. Of broken and imperfect people led by a broken and imperfect pastor. Yet people who are striving to better connect ourselves with Christ and to better love one another. We are imperfect people in a church serving a perfect God. Perfect? No. But there is something different about us. We live different. And we die different. We have met Jesus. We have become his disciples. We have spotted the man carrying the pitcher of water. We have found the upper room. And we have discovered that the arrangements for our salvation have already been made. All we have to do is sit down and share the meal Christ has prepared. So I want to offer you an opportunity. Maybe you've been away from Christ for a long, long time and you know it's just time to come back home. Maybe you've never received Christ before. But I'd like to lead you in a prayer if you're comfortable doing that and ask you to bow your heads as we pray. Would you repeat after me, Almighty God, thank you for loving me. And I love you too. 
I know I'm a sinner. I make no excuse for my sin. I ask you to forgive me. And I accept your forgiveness. Jesus, come into my life. Fill me with your presence. Fill me with your purpose. Fill me with your passion. Fill me with your peace. Fill me with your power. And I pray it in your strong name. Amen. Look at me and say, I am a Christian. Look at somebody else and say, I am a Christian. I am a Christian. I want to invite you to three meals as we close. One you provided. One you can serve at home. And the other you can eat here. On occasion, we do what we call a walkout offering. And we just put some bowls in the back. We don't announce that we're going to do these. And they all go to missions. 100% of it goes to a mission of some kind that's presented a need to us. I was talking to our friend Catherine Hines, who heads Hines Ugandan Ministries in Uganda. She has effectively raised two generations of children in a children's home. She is their mother, their community, their faith. These are orphans and abandoned kids. She not only pours Jesus into them, but she gives them a home and a place to live. There are hundreds of these kids. Last week, I suggested to you that Catherine, after I asked her, she did not volunteer it, said that they were about $6,000 behind because of the cost of food and inflation that's at the global markets. I said, we should be able to help with some of that. And we took a walk-up offering, a walk-out offering last week. Most we've ever gotten in one of these offerings is about $3,000. I mean, nobody comes prepared to give. But I thought we could knock half of that out, and that'd be a huge blessing. I found out this week that on your way out, that we collected $5,300 for Heinz and God in ministry. When I shared that news on Realm, which is our communication system here at Christ Church, they can tell you how to get on that at the Sync Center. Somebody sent me a note and said, let me cover the difference. God pinged me to hold a little bit of money back and I've been waiting for the right opportunity and this is it. We were able to cover the entire $6,000 for Heinz Ugandan Ministries. That's a meal you provided. Let me tell you about a meal you can eat at home. I know inflation has hit hard here as well. And I know there are families in this church who literally struggle to get by week to week. We can't do everything, but there are times that we can help. Today, immediately after church, if things are just really tight for you, I'd like to ask you to stop by Reverend Carmen's office through the doors, take a left in the cafe, take a right. Her office is right there. We have $100 grocery gift cards for you. We're not going to ask you a million questions. You're part of our family, and if you're hurting right now, and if things are tight and we can offer you a little bit of room, we'd like to do that. Over the years, so many people have told me all churches want is my money, and I always told them, now we want a whole lot more than that out of you, Captain. (laughs) 
But we're a church that actually gives money away. We're a church that helps people in this faith community who might be hurting. And if that would help, swing by Pastor Carmen's office, Reverend Carmen's office right after church. We'd love to be able to do that. It's a meal you can eat at home. And now we have a meal you can eat right here. I'd like to invite our communion stewards, if you'd please come forward. This is a reenactment of the meal Jesus shared with his disciples, the meal that changed everything. There are stations in the balcony at both sides and up here. If you would prefer prepackaged elements or gluten-free elements, they're available at both sides of the altar and in the balcony. You don't have to be a member of this church to take communion. You don't have to have a membership card or a decoder ring or something. You, you just need to be somebody that wants to follow Jesus. And we dip the bread in the juice and take communion that way. When Christianity was taking root in this region in the early 1800s and what's called the Second Great Revival, rural people would get together in what were called camp meetings. After the preaching and singing, communion was the invitation. And it was when people stood up and publicly took communion that they identified themselves as Christians and as part of the faith community. It is with that boldness and with that intention we say yes to the gifts that Christ has given us on this day. Almighty God, bless these gifts of bread and wine and make them for us the body and blood of Christ that we might be Christ's body in this world redeemed by his blood. Do your work in us so that we may do your work in the world. And thank you for this imperfect community called the church. Thank you for the gift that it is. Be with all of us as we strive to become more like Jesus, as we learn to love one another. Thank you, dear God, that you are with us, that you accept us and love us exactly as we are, but you love us too much to leave us that way. May we all take a giant step toward Jesus today. In whose name we pray, amen. I'm gonna ask you to stand as you're able. We're just gonna worship. Please come and receive the elements as the ushers bring you forward.